This is EM Pulse, bringing research and expert opinion to the bedside, with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Welcome back to EM Pulse. This is part three of our podcast series on sickle cell issues in the emergency department. Remember, in part one, we talked about vaso-occlusive episodes or pain crises. Part two, we talked about the novel idea of intranasal fentanyl for a pain crisis in kids. In this episode, we'll review other unique emergencies that affect patients with sickle cell disease. Yeah, and it is super important that we all work together to improve care for this patient population because this really is a serious and complicated disease. And also because these patients often face stigma related to their pain control needs, resulting in inadequate treatment. Agreed. And while vaso-occlusive episodes are what we think of most frequently, there are many other things that can and do go wrong. Sarah, what did Dr. Adesina say? She said sickle cell is not just a blood disease. It's a disease of wherever the blood goes. As a reminder, I interviewed Dr. Bimpe Adesina, an assistant professor of hematology and oncology and co-director of the adult sickle cell clinical program at UC Davis, and Dr. Bryn Muma, who's a professor of emergency medicine here at UCD and a leader of the research subcommittee in our DEI committee. Perfect. Let's get into it. So following on from our discussion about vaso-occlusive episodes and treatment in the ED, let's talk about some of the other medical complications that can occur in patients with sickle cell. So one of the first ones that comes to mind for me is acute chest syndrome. So what exactly is acute chest and who is at risk for this? So acute chest syndrome, you can think about it as one of the leading causes of death in people with sickle cell disease, specifically adults with sickle cell disease. It's much more common in children with sickle cell disease. And what we think is happening is that there is probably occlusion going on the microvasculature of the lungs, essentially. And it's possible that there might be some infarction going on in the lung parenchyma. You can think about it as a severe form of a pneumonia. Um, and it is potentially life-threatening in our adult patients. And so it's, it's one of the things that should be recognized immediately. Oftentimes, patients present with oxygen requirement or a cough or chest pain. And then the key diagnostic criteria is a new infiltrate on chest X-ray. And so it's really important to know what the patient's baseline imaging was prior to this presentation. But if there's even an inkling of suspicion for acute chest syndrome, I would say treat first. There's no harm in treating, which mainly requires, you know, supportive care, antibiotics, oxygenation, and then the key treatment would be a blood exchange or a transfusion if an exchange is not possible. It is a severe complication and it, it should be recognized early and treated early. Bren, what's your practice in the ED? Are you getting chest x-rays on anybody presenting with a vaso-occlusive crisis, or how do you decide? I have a very low threshold for getting one. So particularly in adult patients, um, in adult patients with sickle cell disease, if they have a fever, respiratory symptoms, chest pain, or an abnormal lung exam, they're definitely going to get a chest x-ray. But if they're coming in with pain in their hips and their lower legs that is typical for their vaso-occlusive pain crisis, then I'm not going to get a chest x-ray. Um, and acute chest syndrome is really difficult from an emergency medicine perspective um, because it's a syndrome. There's not a blood test that we can do to diagnose it. And the syndrome looks nearly identical to pneumonia. So I think anytime that I'm diagnosing pneumonia in a patient with sickle cell disease, I'm calling the hematologist to talk about whether this is 
bacterial pneumonia that's causing a lobar infiltrate or whether this could be acute chest kind of masquerading as pneumonia and making that decision together about whether we should treat with an exchange transfusion because that's really the key difference between treating acute chest versus treating pneumonia because they're all going to get supplemental oxygen as needed, respiratory support as needed, antibiotics, pain control, um, but we don't typically use an exchange transfusion for pneumonia, whereas it's really a critical part of the treatment for acute chest syndrome. In terms of antibiotics, are you treating for sort of a community-acquired pneumonia or are you doing more broad-spectrum antibiotics? Um, at a minimum, I'm doing ceftriaxone and vancomycin, and I think then it depends on the patient's individual history beyond that. I agree, and I think it's important to also note that uh, patients with sickle cell disease, especially those with uh, homozygous sickle cell disease or sickle cell anemia, uh, they most of them have autoinfarcted their spleen, so they are susceptible to atypical um, organisms. Yeah, and that's a great segue into our next topic, which is fever. So let's say there's not a concern for acute chest at this time, but the patient is presenting with a fever. How do you manage that, and how does that differ in terms of adults and kids? Fever and sickle cell for me is highly concerning. Like that's a patient that I am really worried about. I take that very seriously. I'll expand the laboratory workup. Kids might get one set of blood cultures. In adults, I'm usually getting two sets of blood cultures. After the blood cultures are drawn, they're getting antibiotics and usually being admitted for at least 24 to 48 hours of observation while we await the preliminary blood culture results. Depending on their symptoms, I'll also do viral testing. So we'll test for COVID, we'll test for influenza. If they are positive for either of those, then I would start antiviral treatment in addition to the antibiotics because there's a very real risk of co-infection even when they have a known virus. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I take it very seriously. I do not, um, I do not play around uh, with fever because once again, many of these patients are asplenic, and many of them have indwelling catheters uh, for long-term IV access, and so it can become secondarily infected. Okay, moving on. We've talked about how you know this is often called sickle cell anemia, and a lot of these patients can be very anemic. What level of anemia do you expect to see, and when does it become concerning? you must compare the patient with their baseline. Uh, I can't tell you how often enough I've been um, asked or called about transfusing a patient. And, you know, I'm a hematologist. I love blood more than anything, but I try not to give it to people willingly because with patients with sickle cell disease that are often transfused, there is a significant risk for transfusion-related reactions. They can develop antibodies, which then make them ineligible for transfusions going forward. So you have to be extremely judicious with giving blood products. And if a patient comes in with a hemoglobin of, I don't know, five, seven, six, even four, if it's not different from their baseline, please do not transfuse without having a clear indication for transfusion. The American Society of Hematology have very available and accessible guidelines, um, which you can download on any mobile device on transfusion guidelines for patients with sickle cell disease. So it's very important to know that, you know, is this far off from their baseline? Is there any other indication why you would be giving them a transfusion? For instance, if they're bleeding out because patients with sickle cell disease can have, also have some other uh, complications that require an urgent transfusion. But if it's not different from their baseline, please do not transfuse just for a number. I also want to dispel the myth about transfusing to shorten their pain episode. There is no uh, evidence to support that transfusions decrease pain. 
Um, once again, I, I, I'm the first person to transfuse a patient if clinically indicated, but oftentimes in patients with a stable anemia related to their sickle cell disease, regardless of the number, um, I would argue against transfusing because of the potential or significant risk of aluminization and transfusion related reactions in these patients. Yeah, talk to us about some of those risks of multiple transfusions. The biggest long-term risk is um, for these patients to develop antibodies to red cells. And so for many patients, um, you know, I even had a patient last week where I'm starting them on transfusions because of history of stroke, which I know is also fairly common in patients with sickle cell disease. We carefully match these patients. Like we actually carefully do a red cell antigen matching in these patients. Many of our patients obviously are of diverse backgrounds. And so to find blood products that are compatible is sometimes very challenging in non-Caucasian patients. And many of our patients with sickle cell disease are of African or Hispanic ancestry. And so in the red blood cell donation pool, it's already limited. We do an extended phenotype matching of their uh, red cell antigen profile to make sure that we're giving them the best match possible. And even when we do that, these patients can still develop antibodies. Just think about sickle cell disease as a, it's not just a blood disorder, but it's also like an inflammatory disorder. So these patients are primed to develop antibodies, no matter how careful you are. The big downside of that is if patients become alloimmunized and cannot receive blood transfusions going forward and they have a severe hemolytic crisis or a severe hemolytic episode, we can't transfuse. And that's come up sometimes where our patients come in with a hemoglobin of two or three and we can't give blood because they've been alloimmunized. And as you can imagine, that's a huge problem. Also, if patients ever are candidates for bone marrow transplant, they are automatically taken off of that list if they cannot be transfused for supportive transfusions. So it's a big deal. Uh, the ramification is huge um, in this patient population. Uh, so once again, I just implore you all not to transfuse unless it's clinically indicated. Does the reticulocyte count factor in at all to whether or not the patient should be transfused? It's a really, really good question. So yes, it can. Because once again, uh, just to, for everybody to know, patients with sickle cell disease or any chronic hemolytic anemia for that matter, the way that they compensate for that is to have a brisk reticulocyte response or reticulocytosis. And if a patient is coming in with reticulocytopenia, that means that they cannot compensate for their severe anemia. And so in those cases, the first thing that I do is, you know, is there a reason why they're having what we call a plastic crisis? And so oftentimes, we stop their hydroxyurea, which can suppress the bone marrow. And then we give transfusions if the patients are symptomatic. The usual symptoms uh, of anemia, so shortness of breath, dyspnea on exertion, exercise intolerance, all those usual things, uh, or if there's hemodynamic instability, we definitely transfuse in that setting, especially if the patient has a reticulocytopenia. So they're not having their brisk response like they normally would to their severe anemia. Those are the cases where we would consider transfusions. I agree. And I think these patients are generally much more sort of acclimated to the degree of anemia they have. So even though it will be reported by the lab with one or two red exclamation points next to it, you look back and they always have two red exclamation points next to their hemoglobin level. And they typically don't feel short of breath. They don't feel lightheaded and dizzy. And they are tolerating it relatively well because it is such a chronic condition for them. Again, I typically look at the baseline hemoglobin and the reticulocyte count in determining whether a patient might need a transfusion in the emergency department. But it's 
very rare that we give a transfusion to a patient with sickle cell disease in the emergency department. So let's talk about strokes. So what portion of sickle cell patients are at higher risk for a stroke and why? So we actually have a, a recent paper from our research group on stroke outcomes in, in patients with sickle cell disease in California. There, it follows previous published literature where there's a bimodal distribution. So strokes are highly common uh, in the pediatric patient population. There's a bit of a reduction in young adults, and then there's another risk uptick in older adults. So once again, sickle cell disease is a disease of where the blood goes, and there's also an underlying vasculopathy associated with sickle cell disease. And so unfortunately, strokes are a significant complication in our patient population. But regardless, if there is any change in mentation in a patient coming in with sickle cell disease, I think very low threshold to get imaging uh, to rule out a stroke. It can happen really in anyone. There is a slight preponderance for patients with sickle cell anemia or SS or S-beta-0. Those are the two severe phenotypes. Increasingly, we are seeing as our patients with sickle cell disease live longer, we are seeing strokes in patients with non-SS, S-beta-0 genotypes. And so it's sort of a cumulative effect from long-term vascular injury from their underlying disease. And so very low threshold to image uh, to rule it out because it is unfortunately very common in our patient population. And do strokes in these patients present in kind of the same way that we would typically think of a stroke clinically? Yes, for the most part, patients would come in I guess it could be a little bit more subtle. They're confused or they're not remembering things. So in our study, we looked at transient ischemic attacks, cerebral uh, infarction, or embolic strokes, and we also looked at intracranial hemorrhage. Unfortunately, all of them can be seen in patients with sickle cell disease. And so I think we should have a low threshold, even if they have subtle presentation signs, uh, to make sure that we rule out a stroke. Uh, Because unfortunately, the neurologic findings can span the whole gamut as well. And we can use our same clinical stroke protocol in terms of maybe a CTA, head and neck, maybe an MRI, same kind of workflow there in terms of identifying stroke? Yes, absolutely. The other uh, downside is that patients with sickle cell disease can also have sickle cell renal disease or nephropathy. And so we have to be careful with administering contrasts in these patients for some of them. But for the most part, if you're doing your initial workup, I would say the same flow applies. Um, The American Society of Hematology does recommend having at least one baseline imaging in adults so we have at least something to go with. Because unfortunately, another reality for patients with sickle cell disease is what's called silent cerebral infarcts. So they don't have any manifestation of a stroke, but you clearly see that they've had a stroke in the past. And so it's important to know, at least have one baseline imaging uh, in the adults so we we can have something to compare to if they come in with any sort of mental status changes. And is there any difference in treatment for acute strokes? Are they eligible for thrombolytics? Uh, That's a really good question. I think also similar to acute chest syndrome, one of the things that we do with patients who are presenting with acute strokes is consider a red cell exchange because we know that it's the sickle hemoglobin that is leading to this vascular injury. And so for any acute complication, really, acute stroke, uh, multi-organ failure, acute chest syndrome, anything where there is acute organ injury the mainstay of treatment that differs from other patient populations is that we do a red cell exchange if it's possible at the institution. If it's not, then a transfusion is the next best thing that we can do as well to try to drive down uh, the sickle hemoglobin. And children with sickle cell disease and a stroke, the stroke is almost always due to sickle cell disease and it's treated with an exchange transfusion or just a simple blood transfusion. 
Where it gets harder is in the older adults who also have risk factors for vascular disease in addition to sickle cell disease. And it may not be completely clear what exactly what is causing the stroke or what factors are playing into it. My understanding is that it's reasonable to give TPA, which is sort of the clot-busting drug that we would give to all adults with an ischemic stroke. If we think that this patient may be having a component of a more routine ischemic stroke, but the TPA shouldn't delay the exchange transfusion. Um, And typically it can be given pretty quickly. So I think it's reasonable to give in adult patients. I'm lucky at UC Davis that I have a stroke team and a hematologist available to help make that decision so that everybody can kind of briefly talk about it and make the decision in terms of what the best decision for this patient is, because TPA is not always the best decision the way it would be in a more classic ischemic stroke. Let's move on to cardiac manifestations. So in the ED for us, this would mostly be um, cardiac ischemia or infarction. How do you treat these patients? You know, um, that's a really interesting question. For reasons that are not clear to me, patients with sickle cell disease are actually not at significantly higher risk for MIs in the general population. I think um, our our patients have so many other issues, thankfully. Um, MIs are not one of them. It could also be that we have a relatively younger patient population. But I would say that there should be no difference, really, if a patient has other risk factors. Thankfully, our patients are living longer and longer. And so the living long enough to have other risk factors for cardiac complications. The one complication that I would say is a little bit more prevalent in patients with sickle cell disease might be heart failure. These patients have had chronic anemia their whole lives. There is a possibility of pulmonary hypertension for a variety of reasons. And so heart failure can be something that we see is maybe a little bit more, more common in our patients, even though they're relatively young. MIs are not as common, but if there was any potential risk factor for an MI or a presentation concerning for an MI, I would say that there should be no difference in how they're managed compared to non-patients without sickle cell disease who present with symptoms of an MI. And I agree. The way that these patients with sickle cell who present to the emergency department with chest pain or other symptoms suspicious for acute coronary syndrome are managed are very similar. They typically will get an ECG, they'll get serial troponins, they'll get a chest X-ray. The one thing that I think may be different um, is related to transfusion, whereas patients with known coronary artery disease, their threshold for a transfusion is usually a hemoglobin of around eight. um, And we're a little bit more flexible with that in patients with a history of sickle cell disease for the reasons that we discussed earlier. Talk to me a little bit more about some of those long-term complications, pulmonary hypertension and congestive heart failure. Is the treatment similar to our patients who don't have sickle cell who have these problems, or is there a different way that that we should be treating these patients? Once again, we are very fortunate at UC Davis where we have uh, pulmonary specialists who have a particular interest in cardiopulmonary complications of sickle cell disease, both on the pediatric and the adult side. And so we do try to work very closely with them if there's any concern that our patients um, um, either have pulmonary hypertension or congestive heart failure. They are managed in a very similar way, diuretics um, and uh, other medications like um, sildenafil and other agents. Um, there is a concern about sildenafil precipitating vasoclusive crises in these patients um, based on a clinical study that was done and aborted uh, several years ago. So it's very important, uh, once again, uh, to have a close communication uh, with our colleagues in uh, cardiology and or pulmonary uh, if our patients have any of these complications. 
Another important differential when patients are presenting with chest pain or acute shortness of breath is uh, venous thromboembolism. So either a PE, which is actually fairly common in our patients. Uh, many of them, like I said, have indwelling catheters. So it could be a catheter associated DVT that then becomes a PE. So sickle cell disease is also uh, coagulopathy, unfortunately. So these patients can present very similar um, uh, with some sort of uh, acute coronary syndrome symptom or acute pulmonary syndrome syndrome, syndrome symptom and actually have uh, a PE. So I think it's very important uh, to, to put that on the differential when patients are being worked up. And for PE, is the treatment the same? So if I have a patient with sickle cell who, you know, has a PE found on on CTA, can I send them home on rivaroxaban? Yeah, yeah. No, the, the management is also the same. Uh, I have quite a number of patients uh, who um, are on uh, Xeralto or, or Eliquis or Apixaban and rivaroxaban. Uh, and then some patients have actually progressed uh, or they failed uh, the direct oral anticoagulants and have to be on low molecular weight heparin. So the management is the same. Unless there is another um, contraindication, you know, a GI bleed or a history of a GI bleed or ulcers that we have to be careful for, the management should be the same. So are there any recent advancements or promising developments in sickle cell care that healthcare providers in the ED should be aware of and anticipate in the future? So I would say the management of sickle cell disease or a modification of sickle cell disease um, it's been very, very slow. Uh, uh, and uh, we've had, it's like, you know, a few steps forward and one step back. Uh, so it's been really challenging and or uh, very, very slow. But I would say, you know, of the four recognized um, FDA approved treatments for sickle cell disease, the one that I think you guys in the emergency room should be very aware of clearly is the, the mainstay is hydroxyurea and transfusions. Uh, but we also have um, two oral drugs, L-glutamine and voxelator, uh, and one intravenous drug, crizaluzumab. None of those really should come up or need to be given in the emergency room. Uh, these drugs are extremely expensive and oftentimes the patients will have their own supply and so they can take that in the emergency room. Uh, but I do think that it's important to note that these are potential agents that uh, patients can be taking. They shouldn't matter as much, uh, really, in the management of, of their care in the emergency room. Uh, but when they do get admitted, they should be continued if possible. And uh, once again, these medications are not on formulary in the in the hospital. Uh, and so the patients would have to bring their own supply. Uh, one important update, and we don't know the final answer to, is um, gene therapy might be approved by the FDA for treatment. Once again, I don't see how that would change how patients are treated in the emergency room, other than if a patient who has undergone gene therapy comes to the emergency room, you have to kind of broaden your differential of um, the issues that they might have. Uh, but I think that's pretty early. It's too early uh, to, to know if we're going to be seeing that um, it, probably in the next few years or so. That might be something to keep in mind if a patient has undergone gene therapy. Um, they won't be on immunosuppression as they would for bone marrow transplant, but there could be other issues related to gene therapy or the product that they're receiving uh, that we would need to um, uh, be educated on uh, for managing complications in the emergency room. But just a plug to please continue uh, their home meds. Please be judicious with transfusions and uh, please reach out to your friendly outpatient hematologist if you're concerned. Um, I just want to say that, you know, we love our patients. We've taken care of them for so long. I feel like I want to be there when they're in the emergency room and that's not possible, but 
we're always available, uh, and I know that's not the case everywhere, but we're always available and willing uh, to uh, give advice and recommendations. Uh, so please reach out to us and we'll help in any way that we can. And we so appreciate you guys being on the front lines and helping us with our patients. Um, it means the world to us uh, to know that they're in such good hands. Um, so yeah, just to say thank you uh, and always happy to collaborate. Yeah. And one of the biggest themes I think that we've talked about here is that collaborative approach. And I know when I'm in the ED, I very much appreciate when I can talk to to somebody, a hematologist or one of the nurse practitioners who's been working closely with these patients so that we can really work together on the best solutions for them. And that's been part of what we've been trying to achieve also with our sickle cell work group at UC Davis. Bren, what have you seen as some of the biggest challenges the team has faced and what are some lessons you've learned? So I think one of the challenges we talked earlier about individualized care plans, and we are at a point now where we have them for a lot of patients, but not for every patient, because it just takes time not only to develop the care plan, but then to periodically review it and update it to make sure the doses still reflect what the patient needs. So that is a lot of work for a lot of people. So I think one thing is just more and more individualized care plans and keeping them updated. And then I think the other challenge we've faced, as I mentioned earlier, was just the logistics of how to safely and quickly administer opioid medications when our waiting room is full and we have long wait times. I don't think it's that anyone wants to withhold pain medications from these patients. I think we all want to get them a dose of IV pain medications as quickly as possible. It's just figuring out how to make that happen that's been the challenge. Yeah, and those are ongoing challenges that we're going to have to continue to navigate. So I really appreciate both of you being here today. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Pulse check. Acute chest is a real medical emergency. Patients present with myriad symptoms. Key diagnostic criteria is a new infiltrate on chest x-ray. Treatment includes antibiotics, oxygen, and in some cases, a transfusion or even an exchange transfusion. Patients with sickle cell are often asplenic and therefore susceptible to atypical organisms. So consider broad coverage such as ceftriaxone, azithromycin, and maybe even vancomycin. Fever is highly concerning in a patient with sickle cell. Add in blood cultures to the rest of your workup and have a low threshold to give antibiotics and admit. Anemia is part of sickle cell disease. Patients live low, and their bodies are used to a low hemoglobin. Don't transfuse for their baseline hemoglobin, even if it is low. Multiple transfusions can lead to antibodies to red cells. Check the American Hematology Society guidelines. And don't treat a number, treat the patient. If the patient has symptomatic anemia, like shortness of breath, dyspnea on exertion, hemodynamic instability, especially if they have a low reticulate site count, they may need a transfusion. Work with your hematologist and blood bank for the right type of blood. Strokes are seen in pediatric patients and in older adult patients. Have a low threshold to obtain a CTA or MRA in anyone with mental status changes or any neurological signs or symptoms. Strokes are treated with an exchange transfusion or a simple transfusion. In adult patients with other risk factors, talk to your stroke team about TPA. Living with sickle cell puts patients at risk for pulmonary hypertension and subsequent heart failure. Sickle cell causes coagulopathy and can cause clots. Consider a pulmonary embolism in patients with chest pain.
You know, Sarah, it's interesting to hear this discussion, and it's probably worth a follow-up podcast at some point that focuses on the pediatric-specific issues of sickle cell management. A lot of it is very similar, but we're also aggressive with fever workup and treatment. And I really appreciate the CHOP Emergency Department Clinical Pathway for Evaluation and Treatment of Children with Sickle Cell Disease with Fever. I find it to be very intuitive. And if your institution does not have a pediatric hematologist or a pathway, it's a really great place to start. And strokes are rare in pediatrics, for sure. But It is more commonly seen in our pediatric population than in our young adults and our adults that are not elderly. I personally have a low threshold to consider a stroke workup in a patient with any neurological symptoms, which in our institution includes a stroke activation where they will be seen by a neurologist and potentially get emergent imaging. Yeah, definitely. And that wraps up our three-part series on sickle cell in the ED. Our next series will be about infertility, being pregnant, and breastfeeding in the ED. In the meantime, you can find us at EM Pulse Podcast. If you learn something, share the episode with a colleague and spread the word. And thanks to the UC Davis Emergency Department for working to improve care for this important patient population. And thanks to OM Productions for transfusing this episode with quality audio. <laughs> so until next time, stay curious, stay inspired, and stay tuned. <laughs>